1: welcome to the 38th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, June 6th, 2019. This is Jenna, sound engineer and producer here at WLRN. This sister of Sappho is a grateful lesbian every day. This month's edition focuses on the erosion of abortion rights. We'll hear an excerpt of an interview Thistle did with Mary Lou Singleton a midwife and women's health care provider from New Mexico, in addition to being a well-known speaker and activist in the global women's liberation movement. Mary Lou talks with Thistle about the importance of organizing on a grassroots level to fight the anti-abortion and anti-privacy forces gaining steam in society. We then revisit a conversation Julia Beck had last spring with Jane Collective member Judith Arcana. To close out the program, Sekhmet Shiaul delivers her commentary on the radical feminist politics of abortion and why men want to deny women abortion access, and where the feminist conversation on abortion falls short. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. We start off edition 38 with women's news from around the globe, as prepared by Damayanti and read by yours truly, for this Thursday, June 6th. Earlier this month, Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp signed a fetal heartbeat bill that seeks to outlaw abortion after about six weeks. The measure, HB 481, is the most extreme abortion ban in the country, not just because it would impose severe limitations on women's reproductive rights, but also because it would subject women who get illegal abortions to life imprisonment and the death penalty. Although most women don't find out that they're pregnant in the first six weeks, under this law, if she had an abortion after that time period, she would be considered to have committed murder, and is therefore subject to the potential for life imprisonment or the death penalty. A woman who seeks out an illegal abortion from a health care provider would be a party to murder, subject to life in prison. And a woman who miscarries because of her own conduct—say, using drugs while pregnant or ingesting something to induce miscarriage—would be liable for second-degree murder, punishable by 10 to 30 years imprisonment. Prosecutors may interrogate women who miscarry to determine whether they can be held responsible. Even women who seek lawful abortions out of state may not escape punishment. If a Georgia resident plans to travel elsewhere to obtain an abortion, she may be charged with conspiracy to commit murder, punishable by 10 years imprisonment. An individual who helps a woman plan her trip to get an out-of-state abortion, or transports her to the clinic, may also be charged with conspiracy. In cases of rape or incest, the abortion would be legal only if the woman had filed a police report before finding out that she is pregnant, or when the life of the pregnant woman is threatened. Over half of pregnant women don't know they're pregnant until after six weeks. Based on statistics from the National Center for Biotechnology Information, this means that at least 600 adolescent girls and women impregnated as a result of rape must file a police report, which includes being subjected to a physically grueling and psychologically torturous examination process in order to have a legal abortion. This is especially horrific for young girls whose rapists might be their fathers, relatives, or other people they know, where filing a police report is especially difficult. In a new rule posted online this month, the U.S. Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development announced it wants to give the shelters it funds flexibility in devising their own policies for admissions at single-sex or sex-segregated shelters. Secretary Ben Carson said he wants to roll back an Obama-era rule mandating that single-sex homeless shelters that receive HUD funding admit residents based on their stated gender identity rather than their natal sex, arguing that people could intentionally misrepresent their gender for malicious reasons. This is an important move in protecting the rights of vulnerable women, such as victims of domestic violence and rape, as well as homeless women who may seek out these shelters. The proposed rule would permit shelter providers to consider a range of factors when it comes to determining a person's sex, including, quote, privacy, safety, practical concerns, religious beliefs, any relevant considerations under civil rights and non-discrimination authorities, the individual's sex as reflected in official government documents, as well as the gender which a person identifies with, end quote. Transgender activists, such as Mara Keisling have opposed this proposition. Meanwhile, in California, the state Senate voted 29-7 to, to require the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation to ask inmates their gender identity and to put them in prisons designed for that gender. The only exception would be if the department believed it would pose a significant security risk. The bill would require the department to refer to inmates by their preferred gender pronoun. Feminists in Struggle, or FIST, a new U.S.-based radical feminist organization, is launching a national Don't Disappear the L campaign, just in time for this year's Pride events. FIST has produced a design for printing stickers that say, Don't Disappear the L. Lesbians are women who love women. For the word women, the design has a women's symbol with two X's in the middle to make it clear that lesbians cannot be male however they identify. The plan is to sticker the streets and public areas before pride parades, dyke marches, and or other related events in as many cities as possible. Let's act together to defend lesbian rights in existence from those who would disappear lesbians in the name of inclusivity, said Anne Manashi of Fist. Quote, please join our campaign. To find out how to print your stickers, check out Fist's website at feministstruggle.org. In Odisha, India, a 19-year-old girl was attacked and tied to a tree by residents of her village for being in a lesbian relationship. Sarmila Mala and another unidentified girl from their village had been seeing each other for the past six months. And while there was anger among the villagers over what they deemed, quote, immoral activities, the situation finally became violent when they found the two women sharing a bed. Mala said, quote, I was dragged out of my house by my neighbors. They beat me up and tied me to a tree. They abused and kicked me when my parents tried to rescue me, end quote. A case has been registered against the attackers who can face up to seven years in prison. The group DefendFeminists.net continues their work to stop the ostracization and harassment of WLRN's Thistle Pedersen. The group's most recent action was to gather Thistle's supporters to leaflet the May 23rd board meeting at the Wilmar Neighborhood Center in Madison, where Thistle is banned from performing on their stage due to trans activist complaints. If you'd like to help in the struggle to clear Thistle's name from slander and libel in her community, you don't have to be from Madison to sign the petition, write a letter, volunteer, or make a donation. Go to defendfeminists.net to learn more about this campaign. A transgender inmate at Christchurch Women's Prison is being held in isolation while facing several allegations from fellow inmates, including one of sexual assault. The prison and police are investigating the allegations, with corrections saying, quote, safety is our top priority, end quote. A woman who spent several weeks in the prison this year while on remand for breaching bail is among those who made allegations against the inmate. In New Zealand, transgender prisoners can apply for a transfer to a prison that matches their gender identity, if eligible. However, prisoners who have sexually offended against their nominated sex are excluded from such transfers. The accused in this case was born male and is listed as female on court documents and on his birth certificate. He has violence, robbery, and driving convictions, but none for sexual offending, and hence was placed in the women's prison. Mena Mangal, an Afghan journalist and political adviser who was vocal about women's rights in the country, was murdered in broad daylight on May 11th. just days after saying she believed her life was in danger. She was on her way back to work in Kabul, the capital city of Afghanistan, when she was shot in a public place. Wazma Froeg, an Afghan human rights lawyer and women's rights campaigner, said that Mangal had posted about receiving death threats, and yet her anxiety went ignored. Ms. Mangal was a highly regarded former journalist who had worked at Tolo TV, the largest private broadcaster in Afghanistan, as well as Shamshad and Lamar television stations. She had also recently become a cultural advisor to the lower chamber of Afghanistan's national parliament. On top of her career as a journalist, Ms. Mangal was a passionate advocate for women's rights, speaking out for women's right to an education and to work. Amnesty International has ranked Afghanistan as the worst place in the world to be a woman. Women can be attacked because they go to school or to work. The country also has high levels of rape and domestic violence, as well as physical and sexual abuse by state forces, forced and child marriages, and honor killings. Afghanistan has seen a number of assassinations of women in public positions over the past two decades of war, including policewomen, politicians, educators, students, and journalists. In Mumbai, India, a second-year postgraduate student at Tapawala National Medical College Dr. Payal Tadvi committed suicide after months of harassment and abuse from three caste Hindu seniors in her college. Dr. Tadvi belonged to the Muslim Tadvi Beal community, a marginalized tribal group which receives affirmative action in India. The three seniors, thinking that she did not deserve to become a doctor due to the benefits received by her caste, harassed her for months, calling her disgusting, dirty, and other castist slurs, preventing her from conducting her operations, humiliating her in front of other students, going to the bathroom and wiping their feet on her bed, and forcing her to overwork herself to the point where she fell ill. In spite of filing a written complaint with the head of the department and a verbal complaint with the unit head, The harassers were left with no consequences and retaliated with increased harassment upon finding out about the complaint. On the day she died, her tormentors had humiliated her in front of staff and patients in an operation theater. She left the theater in tears and just hours later was found hanging in her hostel room. The three seniors were arrested a week later. However, recently, the scheduled caste's Scheduled Tribes Commission in India has found faults in the police investigation, suggesting that the harassers were not booked under the right act, substantially reducing their punishment, and an autopsy report revealed bruises on Todvi's neck, suggesting the possibility of murder. Dr. Todvi's case has brought to attention the widespread epidemic of caste-based harassment and lack of institutional mechanisms in India's educational institution, leading many students, like Payal Tadvi, to kill themselves. Writer, journalist, and the New York Times' first and only female sports editor to date, Leanne Schreiber, died on May 31st at the age of 73. While a post-grad at Harvard, Schreiber began her career in journalism by contacting the managing editor of Time with content ideas for the magazine. After covering the 1976 Summer Olympics for them in Montreal, Schreiber was appointed as editor of Billie Jean King's magazine Women's Sports. She joined the New York Times in 1978, and within months was offered the role of editor, replacing the former editor amidst a class action, sex discrimination lawsuit filed by hundreds of female Times employees. She moved from the sports section to the book review in 1980 and stayed with the Times for four more years. From there she wrote a memoir, Midstream, and continued to write freelance articles into and through the 90s. In 1992, she won the National Magazine Award for her two articles on abortion, featured in Glamour magazine. Later in life, she taught English at the New York State Writers Institute at the University of Albany. And in 2007, she spent two years as the ombudswoman for ESPN, where her role was, as her former partner put it, quote, about looking at the coverage of sports as a journalist with a critical eye, end quote. That concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, June 6th, 2019. Share your news stories and tips with us by emailing wlrnewscontact at gmail.com and letting us know what's going on we with their song, Fallopian Rhapsody. Next up, we'll hear excerpts of an interview WLRN's Thistle did with Mary Lou Singleton, a licensed midwife and family nurse practitioner working in New Mexico.
2: Can you start out by telling us a bit about your background and experience in women's reproductive health care and what kinds of services and education you've offered women seeking help with their reproductive health care?
3: Sure. Um, I've been a reproductive rights activist my entire adult life since um, late adolescence. I um, am a home birth midwife as my original profession um, and attended births um, for about 20 years. And now I practice as a family nurse practitioner and I do women's reproductive health care in my practice. I'm also very involved in the women's self-help movement and was trained by radical midwives and um, women's liberation activists who um, were instrumental in the women's self-help revolution that happened in the 60s and 70s, um, where women learned to visualize their own cervixes, uh, track their own fertility, and learn self-abortion skills.
2: Wow. Wow. Awesome. What a great background. Can you talk about the political significance of the law um, right now and like the state of Alabama um, that just passed uh, something that severely limits abortion access? And um, where do you think these new laws, these heartbeat laws are are leading us?
3: Well, I think that anti-abortion factions um, and activists are working really hard to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade, which is the Supreme Court decision from 1973 that legalized abortion in the United States. And um, these these anti-choice lawmakers in states like Alabama, many other states, are passing these state bills that effectively criminalize all or most abortions, knowing. Under current precedent, these are unconstitutional. But hoping that at least one of them will make it to the now conservative-dominated Supreme Court, and that the Supreme Court will use that as an opportunity to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade, taking us back to the days when um, abortion was regulated by the states and illegal in most of the states.
2: So, how likely is it that the that one of these Bills will make it to the Supreme Court level, and Roe v. Wade will be reversed. And what can we do about that?
3: Well, I think it's very likely. I think that um, that the anti-choice side is is very upfront about their strategy. And right now, there's a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. I think that um, that Chief Justice Roberts is is unlikely to want to be known as the as unlikely to want to have this as his part of his legacy i think he's the new swing vote on whether or not we're going to see a complete overturning of roe but the anti-choice forces are are anticipating the death or retirement of of justice ginsburg they actually wrote that into the alabama um strategy that this law um is in anticipation of Ginsburg leaving the court and another conservative coming on the court, and then they'll have five solid votes to overturn Roe. So I think it's very likely that we're going to see Roe versus Wade overturned. Um, that's that's what they're all aiming for, and with the current composition of the court, I I don't really see a way around that.
2: So what? should women be doing uh, to prevent that from happening? And if it's not preventable, how can we take matters into our own hands?
3: Well, I think that women need to get back to, a radical roots and and look at what was happening in, in the 60s and 70s when women were fighting for um, they weren't fighting for Roe versus Wade. This wasn't, this wasn't the situation they were fighting for. They were fighting for the repeal of all abortion laws. And NARAL, which is now the National Abortion Rights Action League, their name, their acronym originally stood for National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws. Um, activists at that time, women's liberationists, were very clear about the fact that there shouldn't be laws governing abortion any more than there are laws governing any other part of, of health care, that the scope of practice of medical providers is left to the professional associations of those medical providers. Um, uh, Florence Kennedy, very famous uh, feminist from the 60s and, and legal scholar was known for saying that there should be no more laws regulating the practice of abortion than there are regulating the practice of tonsillectomy. So I think we need to step back politically and and ask for more, and that will help radicalize the movement and agitate the movement more toward fighting for abortion on demand and without apology. But we have to organize. And what
2: do you think the state of women's organization is Today, in terms of this issue, are we organized? Are do are there, you know, networks of feminists who are are organizing around this issue, or what do you think is is needed exactly?
3: No, I think that it's it's pretty dismal. I think that we're um, not organized. I think one of the things going on with neoliberalism is. Activism has been completely co-opted. We don't see grassroots activism happening on a large scale right now. We see this not this uh, funded nonprofit industrial complex where people think it's activism to write a check to Planned Parenthood, or people assume the ACLU is going to fight this for us, and and we're handing the fight over to the experts. We're handing the fight over to the paid. Uh, nonprofit professionals, rather than having an organized grassroots movement around this, so I think whatever we can do to re-energize the grassroots is a good thing. I think we all have to to really go back to the cliche of of um, you know think globally or in this case nationally and act locally and try to figure out what we can do in our local communities to build that organization again.
2: Yeah. Well, I know there was a rally up at the Capitol here in my home state of Wisconsin, and I don't know how many people went up there. But I, I mean, aside from rallies, what other actions, organized actions at the grassroots do you think women need to be taking?
3: Well, we need to prepare for the fall of Roe. Like, we really have to, to look at what are we going to do when abortion is illegal again. And um, what we know from the past and what we can see happening as we look at the, the map of states that have abortion protections versus the states that don't is that we're about to enter a situation where abortion becomes illegal for the poor and a plane ride away for the rich. Although Georgia did include in their law that it is illegal, it will be illegal under that law for a pregnant woman to travel to another state for an abortion. So even wealthy women in Georgia or women with the ability to get out of state will still be criminalized for having abortions if they go have an abortion in a legal state. So we have to prepare. I know it's it's horrific, but the, the woman is state property. She's a state ...regulated breeding unit in that law.
2: She's a state-regulated breeding unit. You faded out for a second. Is that yes, what you said?
3: Yes, a, a state-regulated breeding unit. That's what I would, would describe that oh. as, that her body belongs to the state. She is, is legally forbidden to leave the state to end a pregnancy. Okay, so how do you think radical feminist
2: activists should use this moment to gain leverage and power in our movement for women's liberation as a whole? What do you think radical feminist activists should be doing around this issue right now?
3: Well, I think that that we need to think radically. You know, we have to think in terms of what what are the roots here? How to help women understand that we do have a primal sovereignty over our bodies beyond what the state says we need to set up connections between women i think we we really need to start talking about setting up underground networks to get people to legal states and also to to train each other to do safe abortions i mean this is something that um women were learning how to do in the sixties and uh, like the Jane collective, none of those women had any, any official medical training. They learned to do abortions. They performed over 10,000 abortions safely. They never had a maternal death of, of any woman who, who was in their care. Um, They, they did that themselves. Um, Carol Downer's group in LA also learned menstrual extraction. They invented menstrual extraction. They performed tens of thousands of pregnancy terminations. I think that, Thinking radically means at least considering taking that step, learning about that, learning our history, learning about our bodies, reclaiming our own body wisdom, and really understanding that we cannot trust the experts to keep us safe. We cannot trust the, the funded organizations to keep us safe. We have to reclaim this knowledge and keep each other safe.
4: hmm
2: My understanding is that in the first trimester, it's not that difficult to self-induce an abortion uh, using menstrual extraction or there are even herbs that you can ingest. Is that true? Like in the first trimester, with the the appropriate knowledge, women could really take matters into their own hands?
3: Especially the first half of the first trimester. Which is not a whole lot of time, but it is some time if you are prepared and have a network to help yourself and other women.
2: A lot of women don't know that they're pregnant, though, in that that first period of time, right? I mean, you have to miss a period and then maybe you miss another period and then maybe you show a little bit before you know you're
3: pregnant, right? If yes, in our current situation where women are really disconnected from our bodies and we have at this point multiple generations of women whose fertility has been drugged pharmaceutically from from early adolescence on, women don't have regular cycles anymore. Women are completely out of sync with themselves um and and that's not Um, the fault of individual women that's the culture we're living in right now which is a culture of disconnection from the body a culture of medicalization of of all human physical processes especially women's biology um so we've got this situation where a large percentage of women don't have regular periods don't understand their fertility cycle don't um They're living not just with having taken pharmaceuticals, but living with an enormous amount of endocrine disruption. So so even women who've never been on hormones to suppress their fertility have a very irregular cycle. So, yes, a lot of women might not realize they're pregnant until they're pretty pregnant. So, the first step is teaching women from a very young age about their bodies, about their fertility signs, about early pregnancy signs. We still have access to pregnancy tests. Those are not monitored yet as they were you know in the Romanian government, like you know women couldn't even conceal a pregnancy even in early pregnancy when um in communist Romania when all abortion was illegal. We still are able to get a pregnancy test without surveillance. So that's something women could stockpile to try to find out early if they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's really important if you're going to have options to know you're, to know early in the pregnancy that you're pregnant because it's much easier to end a pregnancy on your own if you're not that far along into the pregnancy.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Is it illegal to end a pregnancy on your own?
3: You know, that is up to the states at this point. Um, The Supreme Court of Idaho ruled it was not illegal in Idaho to induce an abortion. There was a woman who induced uh, an abortion with a side attack with drugs that she got on the Internet and um, a fairly late abortion. I think the the fetus was about 20 weeks. Uh, I think her sister-in-law or a neighbor, a woman, a friend, a confidant, turned her in. And she was tried for murder of a fetus, and the state ruled it's not illegal to induce a miscarriage or an abortion for a woman to do it herself. Wow. Other wow. states are passing laws that are criminalizing self-abortion. And Indiana, in particular, has already jailed multiple women for, self, for suspected self-abortion. One woman in Indiana was jailed for attempting suicide during pregnancy and, and resulting in <laughs> fetal death hmm When does a fetus become a person?
2: I'm just curious what your <laughs> thoughts are on that.
3: I, I don't think that's a useful argument to engage in. I feel like it doesn't matter when an embryo or a fetus becomes a person because regardless of whether or not the embryo or fetus is a person, it is never okay to force one person to be an unwilling life support system for another person
4: hmm
3: okay so i i don't think we should even go down that philosophical rabbit hole um you know it ends up being a religious conversation it, it ends up being it's just not a useful conversation
4: mm-hmm. okay
3: um
2: i know that a lot of conservatives are very fixated on that aspect of the conversation so i wanted to throw that out there you know but i think you know, personally, I believe that even after birth, uh, an infant and a toddler is has not entered into an autonomous personhood until their brain has gone through puberty and, and developed and they have critical thinking skills. I mean, they're still dependent upon a woman's body um, suckling at the breast for sometimes two or three years after they're born. Um I'm not advocating for, you know, murdering infants or toddlers. I'm, I'm not advocating for that at all. But I think that there's a philosophical argument that human beings, I mean, our laws reflect that, right? You can't vote until you're 18 years old. And that's because the human brain is not developed enough for you to be able to critically think until you've reached a certain age, you know? And so I feel like the laws... Um, about abortion should ref- reflect that.
3: I think so. I think, though, legally, in terms of bodily autonomy, once once an infant is born, it can be argued that any human being can meet the needs of that infant, where when a woman is pregnant, she is risking her own health and life Support system for an embryo or fetus. And that's the piece of it is like you can't ask her to, the state cannot require her to be an incubator for another person. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. So then, and is- then, so maybe there would be an advantage to thinking of the fetus or embryo as a person because, um, you know, you're asking one person to provide sustenance for another person, sacrificing themselves to provide for another person. And that's that's not fair. Um, right. uh,
3: we already have legal precedent that you cannot require people with rare blood types to donate blood, even if other people's lives depend on it. You cannot require people to donate organs, even if someone else will die without it. This is, you know, this is about bodily autonomy. You cannot require someone to be an unwilling life support system for another person. And it's just, to me, it's, it's as basic as that. I mean, this is like 14th Amendment territory of you, you can't, you, you can't um, subjugate one person to another person like that. So, right. I think arguing the personhood of it does not change the argument. If anything, it might make it legally stronger if we lived in a culture that was logical and rational. But instead, we live in a culture that really hates women and doesn't view women as fully human. So Mm -hmm. for these these arguments, it, it often doesn't matter what the what the rationale is. People want to punish women.
2: Yes, I I totally hear that when looking at the Pervy Patel case in the state of Indiana and how she was treated after um, having a miscarriage, how she was criminalized. Um, Yeah, people it seems like people enjoy punishing women Um, Mm -hmm. and that's a horrible aspect of our patriarchal culture for sure. So I'm going to ask you one more question and then we'll get your parting thoughts. What do you think the advent of transgenderism and trans politics has to do with the um, rollback on abortion rights
3: that we're seeing today, if anything? Well, I think that that the cult of gender, is this brilliant new patriarchal ploy to destroy female solidarity to to destroy women's ability to organize as a class? So I think that um, the transgender threat is is very relevant to the discussion of of abortion in that way that um we're at a point where the the left and liberals they're doing backflips to avoid using the word woman when they're talking about abortion bans when they're talking about pregnancy the left can't even agree on what a woman is right now they have no definition they have no word that means the class of people who make new people and that is precisely the class of people that the capitalist patriarchy Needs to control to make more workers, to make more soldiers, to make more people, and so this is a very unfortunate situation we're in, where we can't define ourselves, we can't organize, even to the point of we're being told we cannot legally um, call like have a name for ourselves. They're they're changing laws that um, legally there is no definition of the female sex anymore. Everything is gender identity. So I think it's a huge threat. Um, I also was thinking about this today when, you know, all of these, it's just this rapid onslaught of abortion bans coming out in the news. And then today, also, the Supreme Court refused to hear that case, the Pennsylvania case of the um, female high school student who said that having biological males in her locker rooms and bathrooms was a violation of her privacy. Um, the Supreme Court let the lower court ruling stand that said, "No, students can use whatever bathroom they want. This isn't a violation of the rights <laughs> of females to privacy. So that is a really important thing to look at where the Supreme Court just said that it wasn't a violation of the right to privacy. um in fact, they didn't even make a ruling on whether or not there is a right to privacy, which is the contested issue in Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade and before that Griswold versus Connecticut, which was the Supreme Court ruling that legalized access to birth control, um, are based on a constitutional right to privacy, and that's the first time the right to privacy had been referenced in Supreme Court law. And from that point forward, there was this presumed right of privacy. Now the court is is saying there's no right to privacy for females when it comes to sex-segregated spaces for dressing rooms, changing rooms, domestic violence shelters, hospitals, et cetera, all the places we need sex-segregated spaces. They've just said there's no right to privacy there, which bodes very poorly for whether or not they're going to believe there's a right to privacy for abortion, and that Mm -hmm. could be what's used to overturn Roe.
2: Interesting. So women's right to privacy is an issue in the fight to keep our sex-based protections and also in the fight to keep our
3: abortion rights. Right. It's legally integral to both and it's disappearing in both places. Like it's, it's eroding Mm -hmm. legally in both places.
2: So is this a conservative thrust or is this a liberal thrust or what is this exactly?
3: Abortion or transgenderism, or both? well both,
2: you know, because if it's both dealing with women's rights to privacy, and this this conservative, so-called um Supreme Court just ruled that women don't have a right to privacy in locker rooms and sex segregated shelters and places like that. I mean, what is this force? How would you describe this force politically?
3: I would describe it as as male supremacy and patriarchy and the continued historical subjugation of women in its current form. <laughs> you know, the the transgender issue really uh, that is a really brilliant twist on patriarchy and um, following the rule book of empire and colonization coming in. and indoctrinating the youth in the new language and telling the youth that their elders, especially their mothers and grandmothers, are stupid because they don't know the new language and they don't they don't understand the new ways, so just ignore what your mothers and grandmothers are saying. Like, it's just the same old playbook that the empire uses wherever it goes, right? They, they just have learned, but they've learned to spin it. Like, we never expected this enormous assault on women's rights to come from the left or at least I didn't because I had been brainwashed into believing the left was the party that that supported women's liberation but actually we just have left patriarchy and right patriarchy is what I see I I see liberal and conservative patriarchy eroding women's rights from both sides and it's it's a very frightening time
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Mary Lou Singleton. Can you leave us with some parting words? Would you like to leave us with some parting words?
3: My parting words would be sisterhood is powerful and make friends, develop trusting bonds with women and organize, you know, getting back to organizing as women in the grassroots is what we need to be doing right now.
2: Adelante. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thistle. It's great
3: to be
0: on. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. Speak loud so I can hear you.
1: At this time last year, WLRN had the pleasure of talking with Judith Arcana, a member of the pre-Roe, Chicago-based abortion service, the Jane Collective. At a time when women were denied bodily sovereignty, the Jane Collective covertly assisted women in over 11,000 abortions. Ms. Arcana's experience and knowledge is invaluable to women's liberation, especially considering our current place in American history. Enjoy this rebroadcast of Julia Beck's interview with Judith Arcana and visit JudithArcana.com Jane to learn more.
4: How did you first
5: become a Jane? I met them, so to speak, when in the summer of 1970, I had a very late period, and like so many women in similar situations, I thought, oh my God, I'm pregnant, because I was not in a situation that would have been a good time to either have a child or, as I often think, to have been that child. So I got the telephone number and called and they actually they were using an answering machine which was extremely unusual in 1970. So I got a call back from a woman who said, hello, um, I'm Jane and she suggested I get a pregnancy test and it turned out ultimately that I was not pregnant at all. My period was very, very, very late. So I called her back, told her that I wasn't going to need the service, thanked her so much for doing it. And again, we talked just as we had the first time at some length, and she told me that were taking in new people in a month or two, and she thought that I would be interested, and I thought, oh, well, let's see about this. So I did go to that meeting and was very impressed with and taken with the spirit, the energy, and the intelligence of the women who were talking about the service, explaining it to the women who had shown up to learn about it. And I thought, yeah, it sounds like a really good thing to do. And so I signed up. What you did was a criminal homicide, a felony. Yes, when something is illegal, but it's something people want and need, then people find out about it. The police know who's doing it. The legal system folks, you know, lawyers, judges, et cetera, they know who's doing it. In a case like this, where the it is actually something very good, one hopes that a lot of other people find out who's doing it, too. Abortion has, of course, a history of thousands of years, and in Chicago, as in other parts of this country, abortion was practiced by lots and lots of people all the time sometimes they were people who were licensed to practice medicine those folks were often the folks who were doing abortions. also midwives nurses women who had learned from their grandmothers all kinds of things about our bodies and how to use them and care for them and so on and so forth so always always there had been abortion therefore i guess i want to say there were people who knew and they would tell other people so that you hear stories all the time about a couple of women sitting in the park one woman turns to the other and says god i don't know what i'm going to do i'm pregnant i don't have enough money we can't have another kid and she says to this total stranger do you know anybody so while we didn't have an office and advertise we protected ourselves by not telling a whole lot of people and not assuming that we could speak openly about the work a certain amount of subtlety and discretion yeah we kept it out of the mainstream of our lives we didn't want to endanger the possibilities for ourselves and for the women who were coming through
4: yeah
5: what a very thin line to have to to follow. It sounds like it, you know, but really it didn't feel like it. It just felt like this is really good work. It's illegal. I'll have to be careful, but I'm going to do this and a whole bunch of other women thought similarly. And so we did. So it's not like every day people were thinking, well, well, another day of danger. You know what I mean? That just was not part of the consciousness. You, as a much younger person than I am now, and having grown up in a time in which the minds and feelings about abortion and motherhood in the United States have been quite deliberately shaped by the anti-abortion movement. 45 years of deliberate, conscious political action on the part of the anti-abortion movement has created a mindset that doesn't encourage, shall I say, folks thinking the way we did. There was this concerted effort in all the states and federally to pass laws or get into off, whether it was a school board or a state legislature, who were anti-abortion and who spoke the language of murder and shame and stigma and who said stuff that suggested that this has always been anathema and a horror in the eyes of the Lord, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that was an action. That was a movement. They worked on it, and they did a really good job. And so now a lot of folks have come up in that mindset in the United States it was its so emotional it's so easy to use especially in a misogynist society it's like using race in a racist society you know you can get people it's like a flash bomb you know you can get people to pay attention to what you're saying and if you are clever about it get them to come around to your way of thinking it's not surprising really now now in 2018 in the united states i don't know if i would i I believe i would not be surprised i believe that i would be thinking much more in terms of what you're calling or what you just called that thin line because the situation is more dire people have been taught that abortion is murder, that women who have abortions are killing babies, they have, in fact, murdered doctors in political assassinations, they have set bombs in clinics, so that there are elements of danger that simply did not exist when we were working. Part of what makes the anti-abortion movement think and feel that way is that they have decided, not unlike many other people in uh, a misogynist and patriarchal society, that while there is killing that is okay, like it's okay for the police to kill, it's okay for the military to kill, it's okay to kill animals to eat them, it's okay to kill plants to eat them, or to just get them out of the way if you don't like them, that killing in and of itself is not a problem for them. It's about women having the power to decide and to take action about killing. And also, there's no distinction made by these folks, usually, between killing and murder. Murder, of course, being an evil act, done literally with malice aforethought, as the law says. Whereas killing, in a whole bunch of circumstances, may be neither malicious nor evil, I think that having an abortion, that, that the decision to end a pregnancy and to, to use that language, to kill an embryo or, or a fetus, is a motherhood decision. It's about what about the life of this child? What are you going to do about the life of this child? And the idea that a woman would have that kind of power is anathema to many, many people in the anti abortion movement. Some of them haven't thought about it that way, but I think that that is a kind of fundamental set of concerns for a lot of those folks. So what's the difference here? What's the difference between actual justice and law? Law is somebody has an idea. Hey, let's make a rule in our city or our state or our country that people can't be out after 10 p.m. at night. And so they create a curfew, and that becomes an idea. Justice is about what is the righteous way to be in the world? What is a righteous way to be in the world? In the United States, of course, we had slavery. The economy of this nation has grown out of hundreds of years rooted in slave labor. People were owned as if they were things and used as if they were machines, and that was the law. Now granted, I'm not giving examples of good laws, but I'm deliberately choosing hideous, evil, outrageous laws to make the point that law is a notion, an idea, and if the people who have that notion have that idea, can muster the support for it, they can make their idea into a rule, into a law. But that doesn't mean that there's anything just, righteous, good, or valuable in human terms about it. Not at all. We've had many, many laws that are completely unjust. We need to think about all this and say, okay, so... This is against the rules, but I see that the rules are not good and, in fact, are dangerous and damaging and hurting people. And I see a way that I can do something to stop that badness happening. So we actually have to be informed. We have to think seriously. We have to talk to each other and think together. We have to make decisions about, okay, I guess I'm going to break this law because the law is wrong and bad. I want to talk a little bit about the roles you played as a Jane. I, like many Janes, had several different jobs, so to speak. Everybody at first was a counselor. That was the first thing we learned. I also was what we called callback Jane, which is to say that when people called in and left a message on the answering machine, I was the person who took those messages off, so I would bring the information and pass those cards of information around, and everybody would be choosing who they were going to counsel. So I was a counselor. I was a callback, Jane. I was a driver. uh, You know, somebody had to drive every time. I was one of the people who began learning medical practice, so I was learning about dilation and piratage and inducing miscarriages for women who were further along in their pregnancies and how to handle the tools, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I've had these relationships with total strangers where we did these extraordinary things together, all of them illegal and all of them deep and meaningful and important and now I have all that inside of me as I grow older and older and older. Can you tell the story of your first day as a driver? On that day, the sister-in-law of a woman who had an appointment to have an abortion, on that day, the sister-in-law called the police in her precinct. She was not in one of the neighborhoods where we used apartments for our work. So we, these cops were complete strangers to. I mean, we knew that our cops knew about us because of that's how it works in the world. And they followed me. First, they found the address that the sister-in-law sent them to, which was our front for that day. Someone who had lent us their apartment to use as our front. And I'm proud to say that when we were in court, they announced that they lost me several times we would act as if we thought we might be followed and take small streets and double back and stuff like that so i felt very good about the fact that i had in fact held them off for a while however ultimately they did manage to follow me and when they got to the place where the abortions would be done in another apartment busted us and everyone else who was working and indeed everyone who had come for an abortion and everyone who had come with them and was waiting for them at the front, their girlfriends, their mothers, their sisters, their boyfriends, their husbands, their children. There were over 40 people ultimately that the police took to the precinct at Cottage Grove. Anyway, so that's what happened on my first full day back on the job. What a day. Listening yeah. to you retell it, what a day. We always knew that it could happen. We sort of thought it wouldn't because we knew that our neighborhood cops were not against us. The rule was you never went to work without a telephone number in your pocket to call for a lawyer or someone in your family who would do that for you. And You know, so we did that stuff. I, and many other Janes have said this, I didn't actually think it was going to happen. We had started at about... I'm guessing about eight or nine that morning, which would be typical. And they came at three o'clock in the afternoon. So there had been some women who had gone through and they were, they were gone by the time this happened, which is great. And at around midnight, they took us to the women's lockup downtown Chicago, which is where every precinct sent their people. And then we were fingerprinted and all of that, you know, had mug shots taken, et cetera. And so this little set of cover lawyers... Came to the women's locker in the middle of the night. Probably, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning, something like that, and took me out to talk to them because they had this plan that night court judge is someone that we think will go for it if we explain to him that you are a nursing mother and we can get you out for low bail, and then when the other six go in the morning, whoever the judge is won't be able to ask for higher bail than that. There we were in our cells sort of, you know, knocking on the the metal walls to talk to each other and calling over the tops. I came back and I called out oh God it's such a movie I called out Jane's and everybody said what and a couple other women said who's Jane who's Jane because of course there were lots of women in there and I told them the proposal and they said go go and the other women who were there who also had small children they were the ones who said to me I would go if I could you should go Because I just, I didn't want to leave them, you know? Generally what happens to the women who are locked up is that they don't get such an option. You know what I mean? Right. Um, In terms of either class or race or immigrant status, I'm telling you, we were very, very lucky. We were fortunate, and also we were white. Ah. And this is not incidental. Were
2: the Janes all white? Did you only
5: employ, or did only white women work as James, or were there women of color? What do you
4: mean about... In the
5: beginning, the women who started it were all white. Through the middle period, there were, I think, certainly a great majority, if not all, whiteness. But by the end, there there was at least one black woman and one Latina, and those I know, so I know that. A lot of the women who came through the service were not white, and so we had, in my view, an enormous responsibility to behave uh, in goodly ways in the face of these women of color who were certainly forced to deal with whiteness on a constant basis. and our goal was to offer to all women who would come to us this service, and so we had to be as conscious as a person could possibly be about race.
4: Right.
5: In our whiteness. Out of our whiteness. Many of our listeners are lesbians and radical feminists. Do you have anything that you would like to share with them? Two things. First of all, radical feminists, whatever their sexuality be or the way they define themselves in terms of sexuality, are committed to or grow to be committed to this kind of work, whether it's abortion or some other fraught topic, action, subject, theme. Also, whenever I think about abortion and lesbians, I think about this memory that I have of being at a big conference at which this young woman stood up, and announced herself as a lesbian and said, I just want to be sure that everybody here knows that lesbians have abortions too. And that sort of brought the house down. You know, first done silence, so bold, so out there, and then, you know, people's laws, as one would hope. And the other thing that I think about that is lesbians were in the forefront of the work during the AIDS epidemic. A lesbian woman is someone whose identity and politics call out of her a need and a desire for justice. And I have always found that there are lesbian women in these movements in very serious positions. And this other thing about the sort of social and political and cultural identity, you don't go anywhere without your identity, you know, and you want to be conscious about it. Well, like James, Janes in our whiteness, doing abortions with black women or other women of color, but predominantly black women in the neighborhoods where we worked and in Chicago as a city, there's a responsibility attendant to our identity. I'm talking here about what it means to know who we are to investigate that on a consistent basis, because you got to think about what it means in relation to other people and the rest of the world.
1: This. 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 This, 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 this is WLRN. 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 Women's Liberation Radio. Women's, News. Liberation, Radio Women's News. Radio Liberation, Radio News. Liberation Radio News.
2: Women's Liberation Radio News.
6: Access to abortion is imperative for all women and girls in a world dominated by heterosexuality. A world full of rape. In a perfect feminist world, safe, legal abortion would be free and easily accessible to all females, along with birth control and voluntary sterilization. The right-wing's attack on abortion in the United States is a persistent, long-standing assault, couched in religious extremism without any authentic theological basis. We're used to thinking of anti-abortion policy as exclusively right-wing in the US, but it was not long ago that men in general, regardless of their political or religious beliefs, agreed it was in their best interests to prevent women and girls from having legal abortions. Women and girls found ways to give themselves abortions even when it was a criminal offense some of these methods being barbaric and dangerous, and they will never stop attempting to end unwanted pregnancies even if abortion became illegal again in the U.S. and other first world countries. Men are aware of this and don't care because they're okay with women suffering and dying, and know that making abortion illegal will ultimately lead to a rise in unwanted births, even if it also leads to a rise in female deaths. Men's drive to force women to reproduce worldwide serves their will to dominate the female sex and keep females vulnerable, subservient, dependent on males, and disconnected from any movement seeking female liberation or rights. Pregnant women and mothers of underage children are among the easiest to control as they are limited in their ability to move around and have an enormous economic demand to meet in supporting their children's survival. The world is full of women and underage girls who stay with husbands and boyfriends only because of their underage children. Women and girls who will never pursue higher education or a career because of the children they had early in life. Women and girls who enter prostitution in order to feed their underage children. In all of these scenarios, men benefit directly from women and girls having children they can't afford, don't want, or otherwise can't easily care for. The consequences of motherhood affect a woman or a girl's entire life, even if she spends only part of it supporting dependent children. This is especially true for women and girls living in the third world, spending their entire lives in poverty with very little opportunity to go after their own independence from men. It is no coincidence that the states in the U.S. with the most right-wing, anti-abortion governments are states with a high number of poverty-class and working-class women, many of whom are black. Motherhood and poverty go hand-in-hand for a staggering number of women in this country and the world, and class oppressed women are the ones most affected even by legal abortions being made physically inaccessible. Forcing poor women to reproduce keeps them poor and dependent on men, including men who are abusive, toxic, and worthless. Anti-abortion men want all women, regardless of class, to be trapped in financial dependence on men, But they start with poor and working class women who are the easiest targets. American celebrity Alyssa Milano sparked social media controversy with her suggestion of a sex strike in the U.S. as a method of protest against the anti-abortion laws being passed. As a radical lesbian feminist, I think women and girls refusing to have heterosexual intercourse is an excellent idea no matter what, but it's just common sense in places where abortion access is not guaranteed. If you are not willing to become pregnant and give birth, continuing to have sex with men in areas of the country with limited abortion access is ridiculous, plain and simple. Celibacy is one of only two birth control methods with 100% efficacy for fertile females, lesbianism being the other, so it's mind-boggling to me that so many heterosexual and bisexual women object to the concept of a sex strike against men in a climate where relentless attacks against abortion access has become the norm. This unwillingness to recognize, encourage, and practice celibacy as a self-protective and politically influential tactic for heterosexual and bisexual females is a testament to the sheer power of heterosexual culture and the privilege it confers onto women and girls who have sex with men and reproduce. The risks of heterosexual sex for females are so serious and so high especially when abortion is taken off the table, that defending it as too fun to quit just comes off as immature and tone-deaf, especially when that objection comes from liberal women with class privilege living in liberal states where abortion is widely accessible. Women living in states with severe restrictions on abortion, especially women who are poor or working class and may not even be able to afford birth control, have nothing worthwhile to gain by continuing to have sex with men and much to lose what women leave out of the mainstream abortion conversation is a broader analysis of the social and sexual context abortion is necessary because males rape females but also because females choose to have sex with males whether males want to outlaw abortion or keep it available they're operating out of pure self-interest and care primarily about having sexual access to females Anti-abortion men want to keep women pregnant, tied down by children, and reproducing the male's own genes. Pro-choice men, by and large, still want to use women as breeding stock, but they want to make sure they can have sex with as many women as possible without having to worry about financial responsibility to unwanted children. None of these men genuinely support women and girls denying sexual access to males or refusing to reproduce altogether. Anti-abortion men have just as much extramarital sex with women and girls as their pro-choice counterparts. Pro-choice men want children of their own, raised by women who do most of the actual work. There are fewer differences between these two camps of men than anyone cares to acknowledge, and so too are there few differences between the heterosexual women divided on the issue. The majority of both anti-abortion and pro-choice heterosexual women choose to be mothers, and condemn child-free women who they feel superior to. None of them are willing to disobey the male demand for offspring or sex or encourage other women and girls, including their own daughters, to do so. The reason Alyssa Milano's sex strike idea immediately hit a nerve with so many liberal women is their fundamental obedience and loyalty to the male sex right and their own investment in the privilege and status they gain through heterosexuality and motherhood without critical analysis of the heterosexual system. The heterosexual culture. The abortion debate will stay exactly as it is, a never-ending tug-of-war between two groups of heterosexuals fighting over the correct way for women to live heterosexual lives that include children. It bears mentioning that the majority of unwanted, unplanned pregnancies are the result of voluntary, consensual heterosexual intercourse. As such, the fight for abortion is predominantly a heterosexual and bisexual women's issue. Lesbians and celibate women and girls need access to abortion in case they're raped, and in the event they go through a heterosexual period in life, but cases of unwanted pregnancy resulting from those scenarios are a small minority of the total. Lesbians and intentionally celibate women may not feel like abortion is even one of the top five feminist issues they need to fight for, And that is a justified, reasonable position for them. Abortion is a cause that most liberal heterosexual and bisexual women have always invested themselves in, despite not being true feminists. So hetero and bi-feminists have plenty of allies in the fight for universal abortion access, even without much commitment from lesbians and celibate women. The right-wing's attack on abortion is misogynistic without a doubt, but a defense of abortion without a criticism of heterosexuality and motherhood is ultimately a defense without teeth. Women who truly have the best interests of the female sex at heart won't stop at demanding abortion access. They'll demand universal access to female sterilization, and they'll encourage women and girls to reject heterosexual sex altogether, and think twice before intentionally reproducing. Only by aiming for the heart of heterosexual men's agenda, which is universal female submission to their sexual desires and need to reproduce, will women gain the upper hand and move from a defensive position in this fight to the offensive position. That concludes WLRN's 38th edition podcast for Thursday, June 6th, 2019. WLRN would like to thank Mary Lou Singleton for sharing her views on the
1: erosion of abortion rights. We appreciate you, Mary Lou, for speaking with us and sharing your insight and knowledge with our listeners. We'd also like to thank Judith Arcana of the Jane Collective, who spoke with Julia Beck last year and whose interview we rebroadcast for you in today's program. I'm Daniel Whitaker. Don't miss the interview I did with the fabulous feminist singer-songwriter Rainbow Star last month, available under our Interviews tab on our WordPress site and on our SoundCloud page. Thanks for tuning in to WLRN. If you like what you're hearing and would like
2: to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the Donate button. Check out our Merch tab to get a nice gift in exchange for your donation as well. In addition, if you're interested in joining our team, we are looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, post to our Facebook and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Thanks for listening. This is Thistle Petterson, signing off for now.
6: This is Sekhmet she signing off on another edition of WLRN's monthly handcrafted podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Spotify, YouTube, and SoundCloud, in addition to our WordPress site. Thanks for listening. And this is Jenna. Next
1: month, we will focus our program on the impact of climate change on women worldwide and what girls and women are doing about it. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for it on Thursday, July 4th. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when each podcast, music show, and interview are released, please sign up for our newsletter on the WLRN WordPress site. Did you hear WLRN will be tabling at Michigan Family Reunion in August? Well, now you have. Stop by and say hello. Pick up some merch. Connect with your sisters. August 2nd through the 5th. We can't wait to see you there, sisters. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender, loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. Thanks for your support. We would love to hear from you. So please share, like, and comment widely.
0: For the patriarchal kiss How will we find what needs to be shown And then after that, where is home?